0: This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. This podcast may contain strong language and themes listeners might find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Congratulations on somehow making it through to February. January felt like the longest month ever. Don't you feel like the whole year happened in 31 days? We started 2020 with the threat of World War III. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle quit the royal family. We witnessed the rise and fall of Mike and Leanne's relationship on Love Island. Got through most of award season. A deadly virus was declared a global emergency. And Britain finally left the European Union. It's been a lot, but we're through to February now. The time of the year when it's acceptable to gorge on an unlimited supply of pancakes and be constantly reminded you're going to be alone forever. I'm not sad though. Katie Hopkins has finally been locked out of Twitter. People aren't happy because it was Rachel Riley who met with Twitter to get her account reviewed. You know, the same Rachel Riley who used a picture of Jeremy Corbyn at an anti-apartheid protest and photoshopped his sign calling him a racist. But honestly, I'm just happy there's one less hateful person on the internet. Speaking of social media, I tried to get into TikTok this week and have never felt more old and unhip in my entire life. There's just so much going on. Makeup tutorials, cooking videos, terrible medical advice, can make real money on this app too. It's been reported that some users are making up to £130,000 per post. A bunch of TikTok's biggest creators have moved into a mansion in LA called Hype House. They spend all day creating videos and growing their platforms. It sounds like an episode of Black Mirror in the making. This is your Broccoli Weekly. I'm your host Diora. Don't forget to subscribe and review our show, and a big thank you to those of you who've done so already. In today's episode, we will be discussing post-Brexit Britain, 5G and UK security concerns, plus the hit show Sex Education. I'm joined by political commentator Mike Indian and political editor Moya Lothian-McLean.
1: Tonight, we are leaving the European Union. Our job as the government, my job is to bring this country together now and take us forward. The most important thing to say tonight is that this is not an end, but a beginning.
0: So, Brexit breaks. Day. Wow, it's finally happened. We have officially left the EU. I never thought I'd see this day. On Wednesday, MEP sang "Old Lang Syne, a traditional Scottish song of farewell, while others cheered about leaving the European Union. Nigel Farage gave a victory speech and described the current global political climate as a battle of globalism against populism. He said, you may loathe populism, but I tell you a funny thing, it's becoming very popular. No more financial contributions, no more European Court of Justice, no more common fisheries policy, no more being talked down to, no more being bullied. What happens at 11pm this Friday, January 31st, 2020, marks the point of no return. Once we've left, we are never coming back and the rest, frankly, is detail. The pro-Brexit MEPs then started waving about their British flags, only to be told to stop as this broke the rules of the House. They were told, please sit down and take your seats, put your flags away and take them with you. Moya, what did you think of this behaviour? So embarrassing,
2: isn't it? It's just pomp and circumstance. <laughs> oh. It's just Nigel doing what Nigel does best. Watching it, I was like, how could they not want to get rid of us? <laughs> how could they not want us gone? And just his comments like popularism is becoming popular. Well, that the clue is in the name really, isn't it? Another brainwave from him. I think it just kind of sums up Brexit, which is us making a lot of noise and signifying very little. It was it was just, a, it's school. It's school.
0: Mike, did you have strong opinions on the way they behaved?
1: I'm a I'm bit of a softie, so I thought the the singing at the end was lovely. It, it, <laughs> it it's it's weird watching it because it, this has been my life for three and a half years, kind of following this in great detail, and now it's actually happened. You kind of I'm having a, a bit of an existential crisis now. I'm Like, what am I going to do next? You know, well, I've got a trade deal to follow coming up. But it, on a serious note, I think it passed by an overwhelming amount of votes in the European Parliament. There were some MEPs, like Labour said, dance who voted against it it's a nice thing to do at the end but i think you know if you look at people like keir starmer talking about this in the labour leadership race you know it's better to kind of you know we're leaving for now you know i say for now who knows what the future holds it's better just to get on with it nigel farage i think you know he has ironically earned his moment in the spotlight he, he this wouldn't have happened <sighs> if it wasn't for him he's insufferable he can be an absolute arse about it but he is, has been the most dynamic force in british politics to get this done and it's something that Irrespective of whatever side of the divide you're on, you know, he, he can take a bow, but you know, he's gonna take his time about it. Take some solace from the fact that he isn't going to enjoy his retirement. He isn't used to being a shrinking violet. He's not going to retire. He's not going. to retire
2: Nigel Farage is going nowhere. And you are correct. Like he has absolutely earned every moment of this. He is the architect of Brexit. He has pushed this through. He has been more effective in pushing this policy through than any other British politician that, in my living memory, at least. And I give him props for that. Like I don't even respect him, but I have to give him his dues. But he's not going anywhere. Nigel Farage is going to find either a new cause or a Brexit adjacent cause, and he's going to follow that because that man cannot stay away so do you think the anti eu facility will continue now that we've left
1: it depends what sort of form it takes so you'll hear a claim from the liberal democrats and the remain campaign or rejoin campaign i should say as of you know the day we record this that they built the largest pro european movement in any eu member state there's always going to be a certain sense of hostility towards europe that's intrinsic to certain people's idea of being british being english in particular i think though once we're outside and the trade negotiations are done, a traditional whipping boy, if you will, of for UK politicians will have gone. We can't blame Brussels anymore. And the one thing the government has to do with the next four or five is it's own its own mistakes so now. So who
2: are we going to blame now? I think we know who we're going to blame, don't we? Um, I think the hostility is going to remain, but it will be directed. First, it depends on the trade deal, what happens there, how long that's dragged out, exactly what kind of deal we get from that whether where the eu hostility is directed but i think it's mainly going to go towards the people who are othered continually it'll be migrants as it has already been you know that we've seen a rise in xenophobia and hate crime i think it's up tripled in the five years since brexit no four years since brexit um so it's going to go towards the people within this country who they see as wreckers who they see as opposing the cause. It will go a bit towards the people who are doing the rejoin campaign, but they're such a minority in terms of political force. It's going to be going towards the most vulnerable, mostly, Mm -hmm. as per, as as the British love to do.
0: You know, 87% of Daily Express readers are calling for EU flags to be made illegal.
1: That's right, there's only 87%, to be honest. I would like to
2: first of all ask, um, A, (laughs) who was in that poll? Like, how many Daily Express readers (laughs) are there now? Got a couple of cranks on the street. Um no, I, I think I think obviously that they, Daily Express probably reported that poll, I'd imagine. So I, I don't mm. suppose it's that particularly
1: um it might be scientific. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's not it's not probably not got data to really back that up in the same way. But um it's that kind of attitude. I don't know if you saw the front pages. They were just awful. They were hysterical. Uh the sun did a huge spread in the middle of their Brexit like memorial issue, which was um lots of figures saying goodbye. The great British <laughs> figures saying goodbye to EU. They had people like Diana going See you later, <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, what? <laughs> Princess Diana was resurrected um, via um, yeah, copyrights. That is actually wave horrific. That and then they horrific. had the people they said called the Ramonas, Ramona zombies, which were people like um I think Burkow and um like Starmer in the corner, Tony Blair right at the front, all zombified. So this this kind of like um. Hostility is not going anywhere, and it's 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 very much still present. It's now going to be a gloating campaign, and anyone who stands in the way of what exactly what they want, whatever that is, because I think this idea of you know they don't have clear directives really. Mm. It's more of just uh, there's emotion there. They want to let it out, and anyone who kind of seems to be opposing that, that it's directed against it's, them. It, yeah, it seems
0: like it's been almost a war, and people are just happy cultural, that they've isn't won. It? Exactly, but I don't know what they've actually won. No, what, have won? Yeah, what have we won?
2: What have we won? Go on, Mike.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. From the, for the, for the perspective of the 17.4 million people, I think it's a very loosely defined thing. Mm. It's, I, I am somebody who's... I have Brexiteers who are some good friends of mine. They always tell me that this issue is framed around reclaiming control of the UK, the UK mm. economy, the UK's lawmaking. Borders is a big fact as well. I mean, what, if, let's, let's look at the fact that but it's been very easy for the Conservative Party Brexit is largely a Conservative Party psychodrama. So is is EU membership. A Tory Prime Minister took us in. A Tory Prime Minister called a referendum. A Tory Prime Minister has taken us out. Well, three Tory Prime Ministers have tried to take us out, and only the third one has succeeded. For the Labour Party, though, the Labour Party is probably far more representative of the UK's relationship with the EU. The Labour Party has a very strong pro-remain core with its membership and with its MPs, but there are a large chunk of its voters, as we saw in um december who do vote leave and mm. the the thing that and we've given the Labour party a lot of flack over its brexit position of the last few years at least i have and one of the things that actually has to be is interesting for me now is that although people like keir starmer lisa and Andy are talking about moving on from brexit they're still advocating for freedom of movement now one of the reasons that made people feel they should vote for brexit one of the most tangible reasons they voted for it was to bring migration down now whether or not you think there's too much immigration too little immigration. We couldn't control a large portion of that because of freedom of movement. Now, for the Labour Party to be arguing for that at the same time as wanting to move on from Brexit, they can't do both. Now, you can you can keep rerunning this argument all you want, but you have to be advocating, I think, for for a closer, almost member state like relationship with the EU. That isn't what most people want, though. I mean, the, the, the the core freedoms of the single market, freedom of movement, freedom of goods, freedom of capital stuff, has already been fairly well explored. For most people, I think. In the short term, nothing much is going to change once we enter the transition period. But when everything gets down to Brexit, when we have the kind of trade deal that Boris Johnson wants, which is going to be goods-based, most of our economy is on services, for example. We're going to face a lot of short-term disruption. And that's when the Brexit is going to be tested because they're going to realise that a lot of that economic stability and freedoms that they railed against were integral to holding mm-hmm. our society up. In the long run, we might be fine. In the short term, things are going to get very bumpy.
2: Very bumpy. Some of the poorest areas in Britain are going to lose about £2 billion in funding yeah. from the EU. And that's a hole that has to be filled yeah. by our Treasury.
0: Everyone seems to have quite a different interpretation of what Brexit means. Yeah. And that's why we're still unclear on what's actually going to happen.
1: We only have really known since November last year. I in November 2018. But the government's torn up those different versions mm. so many times. Brexit will mean is a much looser economic relationship with the EU mm. now. It means Boris Johnson's going to stand up probably the day after this podcast comes out and talk about what kind of trade deal he wants. He wants a Canada-style agreement, which is much easier to achieve, which is good news in the short term because it might be easier to agree. But there are large sections of our economy, particularly our most important services, like financial services, they are going to be left outside mm. of that. And we don't even know if the EU is going to, for example, have what's called you know equivalence, where they recognise our financial products. We, we said we'll offer it to them in the short term. So there are still a large number of question marks hanging over things. We could still see large amounts of multinational businesses choosing to move people abroad. This isn't a reason, I think, to be pessimistic, but it, it's, it's just realism at this point. We have to acknowledge that if we're going to change our relationship with our biggest trading partner, uh, which we've closely built over 47 years, it's going to cause some disruption. And I think for the Brexiteers, we have to recognise that that disruption in their eyes, that, that'll be worth it because they believe there's a larger prize of being a more nimbler, agile economy outside mm-hmm. that. But most of them, the more sensible ones, would acknowledge that we would have to go through some form of disruption Mm. in order to get there. So in a roundabout way, they see it as freedom at any price.
2: But I think what we should also remember is there's this huge human cost to Brexit. Because we talk about trade deals a lot. We talk about economics a lot. We talk about, you know, the fisheries. But there are thousands of people who are being like it, the xenophobia that has come from brexit and the fact that like there's so many eu citizens live. i don't know the exact number but eu citizens who are living 3 in, million in, in three the UK. Million 3 million living in the uk who many of those might haven't applied the EU settlement scheme because there's been misinformation about what to do. People have applied for permanent residency.
1: 2.8 million yeah. applications received out of 3 million. So oh, that the, is quite a lot. But there's still, as you say, tens of thousands of people yeah. who, and it, it will be thousands who don't meet the deadline yeah. because this system is not perfect. If you've lived in the UK for more than five years, you can apply for Permanent mm. right to remain. If you have lived in the UK for less than five years, you have an interim status, basically, and have to reapply again. And I've got colleagues and friends who've had to go through this, and they've done it. I must say, mostly with a fair degree of, you know, goodwill. Which, if it was if it was me having to go through that, I would probably be more, considerably more upset. I would think. I think.
2: We also need to remember that the people who are going to be most affected by that are the most vulnerable. So the people who haven't applied are the people who won't have the support of the government, who won't ha- have the access to the things that many people do. There was a big furore on Twitter when um, Claude Bosi the Michelin starred chef, uh, said he'd got rejected from his application. It turned out it was an error. It was because he'd applied for permanent residency as opposed to EU settlement status. But on that occasion, he was able to get it sorted out quickly because a telegraph journalist phoned the home office. There are so many people out there, thousands of people who don't have that access and who don't have that kind of privilege of being able to tweet out and they'll have a Telegraph journalist do the application for them. Um, And those, like, their their families are going to be split up by this. Um, And it's like, at the moment, we have such draconian migration rules as well. So if you are living out... So if you're not an EU citizen, it's the EEA, you have to... If you want to bring a partner or a spouse to the UK, you have to earn... Over eighteen thousand pounds but then that's above the living wage I think it's about thirteen thousand that you get for your minimum living wage um so these are the kind of rules that are gonna apply mm-hmm. if you haven't if you once you haven't got the visas um and it's it's just like there is no it's so clinical we're forgetting that there's like the when we close our borders we all lose out I think there's a lot there's a lot of concern as well about like the staff who um from the EU who, you know, make up healthcare services, social care services, um, the kind of students, the people who work in retail. Um, so it's, and there's workers' rights as well that are going to be lost from this because at the moment those things, like we're not sure exactly what it's going to look like once we leave the EU because these are protections that are covered by EU regulations.
0: So just as a short summary, yeah. what are the next steps that are going to happen in the short term regarding Brexit?
1: Well, the good news is nothing changes for the next 11 months. Mm. So as of 11 p.m. on the 31st, um, we enter what's called the transition period. Now, this is a period that Theresa May agreed with the EU yonks ago now, whereby we stay outside the EU, but we're still subject to all the laws, regulations. Nothing changes, essentially, to paraphrase her favourite phrase from 2017. (laughs) However, it also is the start of a self-imposed deadline for the UK to reach a trade deal with the EU. And the reason I say self imposed is that the government has written into law through the withdrawal agreement bill that we will not seek to extend the transition mm. period. We can do this, but we have to ask the EU in order to do it. It's another um, cliff edge, if you will. At the end, that's the 31st of December this year. Now, we have 11 months in theory, but actually it's more like eight because the European. Commission has already proposed a draft mandate that has to then be agreed by the Parliament and all 27 members. They're going to do what they did with the withdrawal agreement. They're going to hang together on this, particularly with the situation around Ireland and also things like the Netherlands, France, countries that trade more closely with the UK to try and make sure that any trade doesn't allow any undermining of standards as far as possible. Although the looser the arrangement, the more scope there is for divergence. There is still going to be a question around which sectors will be covered by the trade deal? It won't cover services if Boris Johnson goes for, um, say, you know, the Canada-style model. So realistically, we have about eight months. So expect very short-term, intense negotiations. What we're likely to see is a particular. The EU's got two pillars basically: security and the economy. There's going to be discussions over whether or not we want to share security information with the EU, be part of Europol, that sort of thing, which we're very keen on. Look for looser economic ties, and this is where the government has really changed tack in the last year and a half. Theresa May wanted a far more close economic relationship, a shared customs area being part of it, would make it much harder to diverge on issues of workers' rights as well. Boris Johnson doesn't want that. Now, it isn't to say that workers' why. it isn't to say that workers' rights will be undermined. We don't know. Once we're outside the EU, if we have a looser economic relationship, we do have permission to diverge. There may be a case for doing that. There may not be a case for doing that. It's entirely in the hands of the government and its ATC majority. However, until that trade agreement's reached, we, ha- we were going to want to keep as close to the EU as possible in order to get that trade deal. Mm. But the good news is in the short term, if you're worried about things, aren't going to change. And if you are an EU citizen and you are worried about your status, you don't have to be. Just apply for the scheme and make sure mm. it works. And if you are worried, there are plenty of support and guidelines out there, but you shouldn't panic.
0: So number 10 is having a dinner to celebrate Brexit. Do you know what's on the menu? I,
1: I do. This is courtesy of The Guardian. So they are serving um, roast beef and Yorkshire puddings <laughs> washed down with English sparkling wine and Ploughman's cheddar as well. So this may or may not be your idea of like nice food. You know, for those of you have done Veganuary, you may be thinking, you know, roast beef sounds nice right about now. But for other people, it's going to be smacking a bit of that Little Englander uh, cliche a bit. And, you know... They're projecting. A, Big Ben isn't ringing as well, so they're, they're projecting a clock onto the side of they're number ten to count funds. down. They got two hundred seventy-two thousand pounds. That is would,
2: embarrassing. Yeah. People put your money towards something better than that.
1: Aaron Banks put fifty grand in as well. Which is <laughs> Aaron Banks, if
2: you want to give fifty grand to someone, please. <laughs> My bank account is ready. <laughs> it is open.
1: Oh dear. I mean, how do you how do you pitch this if you're the government? I mean, this this is a government that is as right wing in living memory, certainly since Thatcher. It's also a government that has had a lot of successes in the last year or so, and they have a lot to celebrate. So, you know, whether you're confused, whether you're celebrating or commiserating tonight, try and have a good one and, you know, come back on Monday nice and fresh because, you know, they're going to be enjoying it. There's Netflix a lot tonight. of work
2: to do. There's yeah, when you're listening on do. Sunday, hang from your Brexit weekend. Just know that uh, the work starts on Monday.
1: That's why the Foreign Secretary was at pains to say that we know more about Huawei and the risks it poses than any other country in the world. Even though they also classified Huawei as a high-risk vendor, which means it's...
0: So let's talk about 5G and Huawei and UK security. After years of deliberation, the UK has finally confirmed Huawei will be allowed to be part of its 5G network, but with restrictions. Huawei was formerly deemed a high-risk vendor. However, Britain's spy agencies have said that any risks from using Huawei can be contained and that US calls for a total ban are disproportionate. The company has been supplying equipment in the UK since 2003 and is already subject to regular review by an arm of the GCHQ intelligence agency. For those who don't know, 5G is a next generation of mobile internet connection that offers a much faster data download and upload speeds. What industries will 5G be useful for?
1: any industry that deals in data is going to massive benefit from this. And it's not just about download and upload speed it's about network stability as well. Because I'm sure, like me, you've all been out, you know, around central London in particular, and your network coverage has dropped. This is because, if particularly if even 4G networks, they can't cope with the amount of traffic and people use them. Mm-hmm. 5G essentially has greater stability of connection. It's also faster mean you can send more information. So that doesn't just mean better mobile connections, it also means the potential applications for a whole wide range of things. I mean, smart technology is going to benefit massively from this. Your fridge, could talk to your phone, the kind of information we want to send and that's involved in this could potentially underlie a vast revamping of how we live our lives in society. It's very exciting stuff. But the technology to build this kind of network is only really available from three major Mm. international vendors, and Huawei is one of them. The reasons there are concerns around Huawei is that there are allegations of its ties to police states and certain surveillance apparatus as well. Um, The Chinese, you know, whether or not the Chinese government has used state aid as well in order to finance it too, but it is one of the major providers of 5G technology. This decision has been kicking around Whitehall for ages. And it's almost funny trying to imagine, you know, these big, fusty rooms inside the Cabinet Office and Downing Street, you know, these Georgian rooms. People are trying to debate the future of the UK's digital infrastructure when, you know, civil servants are still, ministers still carry around red boxes as well. I don't know.
2: Boris got a bit better at social media during the last campaign, did he not? (laughs) Fact check UK as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those New Zealanders came on board and suddenly they knew what TikTok was. <laughs> oh,
1: so we've now got a situation where as of this week, the government's exercising its majority effectively. They're taking difficult decisions. They have granted Huawei limited approval to, to construct the UK's 5G network. It's going to have a 35% market share at the start and that's envisaged to come down gradually. Being a high-risk vendor as well means that geographically it won't be involved in sites mm. near particular sensitivity. So, say, for example, GCHQ site in Cheltenham, military bases, spy bases, that sort of thing.
2: So, if you don't see a Huawei mast near you, you know you're living near
1: a yes, security so that, straight, base. that unmarked car across the road <laughs> yeah. may actually represent something more significant <laughs> than you think. But crucially, Dominic Raab stood up to, to make the statement about this mm. in the House on Tuesday He was adamant that the UK understood the risks that Huawei posed better than any other country in the world. Now, that's a heck of a claim to make. They may be able to back it up. GCHQ is a particularly able organisation, but it's also, you know, the old adage, pride comes before a fall. The other thing that was the under this spectrum was the fact we have an intelligence sharing partnership with the five eyes, which include America. And this is an, quite an integral part of our national security apparatus. Now, we're very good at intelligence gathering, very good at cybersecurity, And the US, particularly under Donald Trump, had been adamant that we not grant Huawei any sort of role at all. Now, you know, the president's already on under an impeachment trial for a quid pro quo here. So there was, you know, we didn't want to think there was a the daily suggestion this might influence a possible UK-US trade deal. But for Boris Johnson to be in the same week we leave the EU to also take a decision that appears to have spited the US president, some people have gone, is that really a smart move? Honestly, I'm not sure. The trouble with this is, and it's the same with most long-term big political decisions, whether it be HS2, whether it be 5G, whether it be leaving the European Union. We won't know the implications of this until the network has been in place for years, probably decades so, what has happened this week is one of the most far-reaching decisions the government has taken, and also evidence of the fact that we have actually moved past Brexit. Now, these big decisions are being taken, but we won't know whether it was good or not until twenty, twenty-five years down the line. I'd are say. there
0: any alternatives beyond Huawei?
1: Two other providers, including um, Sony Ericsson, as one of them. The trouble is, though, that the kind of technology we we could have used other providers, but arguably it would have rolled it out slower. And the UK has historically lagged behind other countries in terms of any form of infrastructure spending. You know, we haven't built a north-south railway, railway north of London You know, in 100 years. We haven't managed to keep our digital infrastructure competitive. We haven't even rolled out full fibre broadband to the same extent as Portugal, for example. There was too. someone
2: offering that, but... I- I can't remember what happened in the in the election.
1: <laughs> free free broadband free, as well. Free, free, free broadband, fibre
2: broadband. But something, something happened.
1: Yeah, something happened. Tips of mind. Yeah. So the digital infrastructure is going to be. It, this is probably the most far-reaching decision the government has taken and probably will take in its time in office. I would argue the implications for five G are well worth looking into. It's not mm. just about whether or not you can download your Netflix much quicker than normal, or you know, you know, mm. upload a selfie. I don't know. I mean, we don't really fully realise how this is going to affect our lives yet. But the security concerns are pertinent because China has shown in the past, quite frankly, a flagrant disregard for other countries' sovereignty and boundaries, and it, you know, Although we've, this shows. England, that really, of course, has never shown any um, disregard yeah. for another country's we have, we have a, sovereignty. We have a flawless record in this area, Moy. our history is unblemished, <laughs> as you well know. But in all seriousness, yeah, look at how the government's gone from courting China under uh, right. David so, Cameron. It's so
0: confusing. Do you think, Moy, that this move to include Huawei could be part of the new relationships we could see after Brexit?
2: I mean, I'm not in Boris Johnson's head, so I don't know. I know he's always been a technology fan. I mean, he had that partnership with Jennifer Curie. Um, <laughs> It's hard to say. I, I would actually say from my kind of... And I'm, I'm not an expert on the kind of political machinations of Boris. That's not really my area. But I'd say it's probably more of a move to show that he won't be cowed by America, to be brutally honest. It's like, obviously, I think, as, as Mike said, it is massively motivated by the need to catch up in terms of digital infrastructure, because we do. Um, but also the fact that he's not completely bowing to, to Trump is you can't ignore the implications of that, especially, as you say, during this week. It, the message is loud and clear. They've made a compromise of sorts by only by limiting what the, how Huawei are allowed to do. But I do think the fact that they're not ruling out altogether is, is trying to set the tone for future negotiations because the thing is with the trades or with America, and I'm, Mike will be much more up on this, but from what I can see, we're going into this with not that much... To offer bar like I know Trump very the ambassador the outgoing ambassador from Britain to America has recently commented on what he thinks Trump wants from us in a trade deal and that is full access to pricing, Mm. medication no yeah medication um what else did he say he said he was talking about like the kind of things that they want access to you know chickens yeah agriculture agriculture the agriculture. agriculture and the problem is if we're going in and saying you know. No, you can't have any of those things. And also, we're gonna we've not listened to you on Huawei. Then why and they why would they give us access? For example, with with planes and air, and air infrastructure. So mm. they were talking about potentially, you know, having British carriers being able to fly in America. But as the British ambassador, former British ambassador, he was sacked after um his cable insulting Trump was leaked, which was. Oops. Um but as he has he said he was like why would they give us access when we're not going to bend on any of these things. So I think it is it maybe is a sign from Boris that he's going trying to, he's going to negotiate with a lot flintier hand than perhaps people expect.
0: I mean post Brexit it feels like we need to get technology right. How can we call ourselves a leading nation if we're behind on a technological level?
2: Well, are we behind? I don't. I mean, we're obviously lagging in some ways, but I think it's it's it depends what we mean by that because we're not really like, as far as I can tell, a massive producer of brand new tech. We've never been a leader in that sense. The
1: government's raising R and D investment, and it's, yeah. you know, it's going to be another nine billion pounds going into that. God knows where they're getting the money from, but they're finding it somewhere. <laughs> it's very difficult to try and understand the decision when the, the uses of mm. it haven't really been fully explored yet, and there are plenty of technology writers out there who can explain this probably far better than I can. On a political level. We've been talking about a UK-US free trade deal for quite a while now, but Mm. we don't know what form this will take. And Mm. Donald Donald Trump has shown a tendency to open agreements and scrap them, but he isn't a man for detail. And one of the things that this might just boil down to is a simple understanding between him and Boris. There may not be much at stake here. I mean, US drug companies already do sell into the NHS you know, we saw this with Akambe, for example, you know, the cystic fibrosis drug, that there was a protracted dispute about that between them between the NHS and Vertex for years that only just got resolved last year by Matt Hancock. So, but... Food standards is a more pressing issue because large of numbers of Trump's bases do come from the US farming community, mm. and they have been hurt by the president's t- trade war with China, that has raised prices at home and made their you know made their businesses harder. So access to the UK market, and again we talk about yeah. e- UK EU standards there as well. On the one hand, we have to try and please the EU by make, ha- signing up to. Matching their standards as part of the so-called level playing field, which will, the EU is still insisting will be part of the negotiating strategy, even though they took it out of the political declaration. And on the other hand, the US are going to want us to lower their standards because the yeah. bigger economy has more clout. To conduct the trade negotiations in parallel is stupid. We should do the EU deal first, then try and get something out of the US. 43% of trade versus 10%. There's no There's no. You know, argument which is more important. The EU has to be the priority.
2: probably will be Wayne, because Trump's quite busy right now.
1: Well, yes, but if Trump wins re-election, <laughs> yeah. it then becomes a case of how long does this negotiation last because it took the Canada seven, seven years. years to agree right, to and right. the
0: re-election is this year.
1: And Trump's re-election is this oh. year. He could only serve another four. Not
0: re-election. I mean, the, the election is this well, year.
1: Well, yeah, he's, 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 the but he's running for re-election. Here. Yeah, he's running for re-election. So he we could well, have well,
2: another... do you know that we don't, Diora? <laughs> God. I, I, I definitely hope not. <laughs>
0: um <laughs> yeah, oh God, that yeah you know what actually the thought of that really made me sweat a bit uh,
2: <laughs> but we don't know what's gonna happen
0: so talking of security UK plans to roll out facial recognition cameras mm. to increase surveillance now Moya you've wrote an article about this for Gaudem this week what are the downfalls of facial recognition there's several
2: articles about this topic um downfalls of facial recognition I mean there's many for the start obviously it's a massive invasion of privacy um for second, it doesn't even work properly. So the Met base, to give an overview, the Metropolitan Police are rolling out live facial recognition from February. They've been using this on and off in trials from about 2016. At the moment, that technology from independent reviews has an 81% inaccuracy. Sorry? 81%. There are some trials where it has failed 100% of the time to identify people correctly. Now this gets worse when you look at people that is particularly terrible at identifying black and brown people a study found were 100 times more likely to be misidentified by facial recognition technology there was another study in mit by a very good grad student called joy Bulawami, i think and she found that facial recognition has massive racial and gender biases for example it for when you get to dark-skinned women it misidentified them 34 percent of the time when it comes to light-skinned men that goes down to less than 1%. Because facial recognition and this technology is built usually by white people, it doesn't identify faces of black and brown people. Now, okay, that's a problem on its own. But when you look at what the system is going to be used in, the policing in London suffers from institutional racism. The Metropolitan Police is 86% white still. And it, it there was, there's been criticism over the last few years about the policing methods they use. They over-police black and brown communities. If you're a black person, you are eight times more likely to be stopped and searched than a white person. Forty times more likely if that's a stop and search done under a Section 60 order, which means it's done without suspicion, which means they randomly stop people. So I'll give you a scenario. For example, a 14-year-old boy walking outside a station in Romford, And he was stopped by police because their facial recognition technology identified him. And it said, "Okay, this guy's on our watch list. So the police stop him um, and they search him. He's saying, no, I haven't done anything. I mean, they're like, no, no, no. But our technology recognized you. Stop him and search him. Take his fingerprints. And it's only then that they realize the technology was wrong. So the problem is here and but now that, they have his fingerprints. Now they have his fingerprints. But the problem is here that these policing methods, so for example, stop and search already, they disproportionately target black and brown individuals, particularly black individuals, particularly black young men. And when you've got technology misidentifying individuals and backing that up, you're going you're not going to listen to those people. Even like their voice, their protests of innocence are going to go even even less. You are simply going to believe the technology. And even if you don't 100% believe the technology, you'll go with that regardless because there is implicit bias in these decisions being made. You're looking at a terrible scandal waiting to happen and no one seems to be doing anything. So if you can resist, resist, resist. People like civil rights charities are going to take legal challenges against this. But it is a really bad problem and we need to be talking about it more. So,
0: now onto our last topic, which is sex education. Woo. Everyone has been talking about Netflix's second season of sex education. Firstly, have either of you seen it? No. I
1: haven't yet. No. Well, I watched the first season. I
2: watched the first season.
0: Oh, you've seen some of Sex Education. I, I,
1: I watched my first couple of episodes uh, last night, actually. And I was thoroughly, was that exciting for you? I was Mike? Ther- thoroughly charmed by it. Yeah, I absolutely loved
2: it. I love yeah. to be charmed by sex education. <laughs> so, yeah. Who are your favorite
0: characters? Tell me what you think.
1: I I love Eric. Eric is just mm. Eric is bay for me. Eric, <laughs> Eric, Eric is bay for me. <laughs> Um, it's it's really interesting because, like, I you know, as I'm going to show my age. I grew up when Skins was on TV, and that was a very that was toxic. That which was
2: series of Skins though? All one. of them. <laughs> so I remembered
1: when when it was Nicholas Holt, and that for me was you know I was in sixth form at that time, and that was a very glamorous portrait of love. You know, that
2: must have been strange growing up when Skins sixth form show about sixth formers yeah. like when you in sixth form. But
1: no, was when I went to uni. Skins was like was yeah. just that season so generation. One cast were, were there, and it was still the best series of Skins. Skins is a great it is TV the best series. series. Of skins. And then we had The In Between Us after that, and you know, that was a very male dominated mm. view. And I, I haven't seen a show like this before.
0: It's funny that you mentioned those two shows because
1: mm.
2: they also explore sex yeah. in very different ways to sex education. I would say sex education is actually a culmination of those shows what those shows did what the, the conversations those shows paved and how i guess mainstream discourse has moved on since then so you've got you've got the elements that made skins popular in sex education which is you know the teen the colloquial language the like the pop culture topics the like japes um but you've also got like a very 20 20- Tens understanding of like sex and how we talk about sex and how young people relate to that and i think that's why it's popular like in 10 years will sex education look as dated as skins it's something i'm quite interested
1: in i think for me i think and you talked about this before we started recording you're about asexuality being portrayed mm. in there and you know there's about 800 people in this country who do define as asexual mm. and they are not represented in the media at all and you know there are so many different issues to do with sex not, not just in terms of gender identity and sexual identity but in terms of how people find out and understand about sex and it, mm. it it probably has changed but just thinking about the media portrayals like you think i watch the in between this now and it i cringe and i think mm. i don't think sex education will date as badly no
2: probably not
1: because the in between this speaks to sort of crass masculinity i think things have moved on but it's also not really it's not really of its time, I think. It's, it's also something, I think, it's it's also a cross-generational thing because there are older characters in the show. You know, it, 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 the, the lens for framing everything is through Gillian Anderson's you know, mm. Right, his, his so I mean, it, it's a
0: show about teenagers, but you know what? I've seen everyone talking about it. It's, it
2: definitely mom, has a cross-generational appeal. Mm. My mother loves it. She sent me a text about it. Wow, really? She, she texted me saying, I'm watching Such Education. It's very good. Gillian Anderson is great. And then went to reminisce about her own... Sexual education. Shout out mum if you're listening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Well, yeah, I'm, I guess there's always going to be something new to learn about sex. And Well, it's
2: really interesting you say that because a study came out today actually which um, talked about how British teenagers are increasingly turning to pornography because schools are not telling them what to do in early sexual encounters. Say, they say that sex ed is still increasingly focused on contraception. And I do think that perhaps there's a disconnect between what we think is going on in schools in terms of sex ed and what perhaps like is actually happening so shows like sex education may be really important i don't think you should be having to depend on teenagers to go out and find these things themselves like sex education is amazing but why aren't they showing sex education in schools
0: exactly and i i do just remember when i was at school it was all about heterosexual couples Mm. and it's also more about the act of sex itself but nothing to do with the relationships or you know the dynamics um or even just Just friendships sometimes friendships and you know you're not always going to be banging all the time
2: right exactly it's like, it's like there's so much i wish that we talked about more when it comes to sex and like you know pleasure what is pleasure like how do like masturbation how do you like i know so many people who didn't even know how to masturbate still don't know how to masturbate and like you talk like I talk very openly about sex. I talk very openly about like things like vibrators and stuff because I think it's so important. And I wish it was something that I'd been told about when I was younger. I had to go out and do it myself. But not everyone has that confidence to go and just explore sex themselves and explore sexuality. Sex education is is,
1: is a lesson to everybody, particularly people who are in important positions and learning how to reach young people. Mm. I mean, let's not forget that, you know, politics, you know, going back to this, people, young people don't care about politics. How do you talk to young people about Big issues. Well, sex education shows you can take a topic as sensitive as this and make it relatable to I them. I would
2: actually disagree. I think young people are more switched on and more plugged in about big issues than ever. Young people do care about politics. Young people do care about sex. The two are not mutually exclusive. I think it's also just the thing that sexual education does so well is it doesn't patronize. It talks it just it's relatable. You can as you said, you see yourself in these characters and it talks in a language that people understand it. and that's also why older viewers are enjoying it too, because it's it's like it's adult. It's, it's not, probably allowing them yeah. to process a lot of the stuff they well, weren't able to when they were younger. It's that, but it's also just like, it's just talking sense. It's just talking in a way they recognize. Um, and they probably recognize from their kids as well. I, I think, I think, yeah, I think young people are more plugged in. Like the generation that I'm part of and the generations below me are more switched on and more aware of things than I've ever seen. Um. So I don't think it's that they're not interested in things like politics. Oh no, my point
1: wasn't they weren't interested, but I think it's about how they communicate, particularly if older people are trying to reach younger people. Yeah, yeah, that, there's often a divide there. Struggle. I mean, young like I mean, <laughs> people are more switched on, but it's a question of how if you're, you know, I don't know the age of the right for sex education, but there are a lot of bigger topics that let's face it, the average mm. age for politician in this country is well above, you know, a millennial, or mm. you know, they are there are a certain generation. For me, sex education shows that they can, you know, they can break topics down to, to relate to people on different levels. Mm. That you know, th- th- there isn't, there doesn't need to be an age divide in politics. You can take a topic as touchy as sex and actually make make them mm. that crosses generational boundaries. That's invaluable. That's why this is such a wonderful show. I and
2: think. What I would also ask about it is why is this? Why did this show get made by Netflix? But why isn't it being made by like you know the likes of the BBC or ITV or Channel Four? These are this like there's been a big question this week about the BBC, you know, there's job cuts, etc. And they've been saying why can and a lot of it's to do with the fact they say they cannot appeal to people under 35. Yeah. They haven't been able to do that successfully. I do think
0: one of the biggest successes of this show is the unapologetic diversity mm. It's obviously been praised for that so much. But it was so refreshing to watch something where diversity wasn't some kind of afterthought. It's the norm.
2: I always talk about the difference between diversity and representation. So it's like, you can put people in, you can put different faces in, you can put people of different orientations in, but unless you're just showing them as 360 degree characters, and as you say, it's the norm, it's like there's a difference between, you know, putting someone in and then putting them as a 2D.
0: Exactly. It's individual. not like... Look, They're here here to, you yeah. are and you are an Asian girl and that's your entire yeah, identity. you're an Asian girl
2: in your pan section and that's it. It's like, no, you are a 360 degree character who is here for a reason and has a story arc and is part like this is just part of your personality and it's important and it's part of your story, but it's not the whole thing and that's that defines what you. Yeah, it represents. It's not just like you're here just to be here. You're here because you add an important integral part to the story. And I think that's re- that's also really special.
0: What did you think of sort of the weird hybrid of UK US in the filming and it was filmed in Wales as well yeah
1: Welsh borders yeah I mean it it works surprisingly it you know there's there is no school like this in the country but it does work weirdly enough it takes the, the, the it takes a bit of American high schools that I think we all kind of like grew up with I wanted to go to the American high school when I was you know you, you get you, know, you know when you go into school and you're wearing like your school jumper and your blazer that's just a bit awkward but there's also i think it also speaks to something at where they've pitched it here like 16 mm. 17 there's a sense of optimism in that age that i remember feeling when i was 16 17 that's probably long, more longer ago than i care to admit but the, the 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 meshing of the styles i think and also like, like the representation and the diversity in it they've built a world that you want to be visited it, mm. it feels a bit otherworldly it's almost like it does it, 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 it is i think it does represent an ideal in a way but it's not an ideal that is out of reach it's almost like like you know if you think about all the best worlds that you want to inhabit in fiction they're just a little bit adjacent to what you recognise as reality true. and I think that's the beauty of what the sex education guys have done is they've made something that is believable but also something that means you just want to stretch it up a little bit more thinking we could be a little bit better at this
2: I get what you're saying but unfortunately I hate it <laughs> <laughs> No way. I, I hate that as a stylistic choice. Um and they I think they actually did it because from what the producers said it was because they didn't think American audiences would get British high schools. What? So that was actually a choice made to appease all the American viewers. Oh it's
1: true, and they tried to adapt skins for the American. Yeah, exactly. Audience, a that that
2: flopped. It um so massively. I understand why they did it. It still feels like a British show though. Well I came yeah. from you know, I come from the wash border. I was at the school sixteen, seventeen, watching those hormones fly around and let me tell you, it was not that glamorous. <laughs>
0: Oh, <laughs> well, thank you so much what a fascinating conversation we've had thank you and ever. where can we find you both on social media
1: so you can find my website it's the groucher that's www.thegroucher.co.uk and i'm at mike on twitter
2: i'm at the end of the rainbow no i'm at mlothiamaclain on twitter and at moya underscore lm on instagram in other news this week
0: there have now been confirmed cases of coronavirus in the uk British Airways has suspended all flights to and from mainland China. The Northern Rail Firm is being nationalised after the troubled company caused years of major disruption. This means it will be brought under government control. For the 19th time, Anton Deck won Best Presenter at this year's National Television Awards. And finally, Elon Musk has randomly released a new song called Don't Doubt Your Vibe. Spoiler. It's not that great. This has been Your Broccoli Weekly. I've been your host Diora, and you can find me on Twitter at the Diora. Credits of the clips used and information can be found on our website www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. You can join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag Your Weekly. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app? And if you loved what you heard, tell your friends. Your Broccoli Weekly is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Car Pocket Casts and all your favourite apps. Your Broccoli Weekly is produced by Cass Denton. This is a Broccoli Production.